You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. So good to see you. Happy Mother's Day. And go ahead and turn to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. It's so great to remember our moms and those that care for us, those that love us today and provide for us and feed us and help us give us counsel with raising kids and drive us to school and buy us clothes. Even as adults, maybe they buy us clothes sometimes. But it's so great uh, to have moms who stand and pray for us before our Father in heaven. And I realize that for some of us today, too, that um, Mother's Day can have a mix of grief and sadness and even frustration and, you know, whatever. There's, like, that's one reason why I don't do a Mother's Day-type sermon on a day like today because we all have a variety of emotions when it comes to either being a mother or in response to our mothers. And one thing that's so important for us to realize is whatever we feel, even on a day like today, we bring all of these things to Jesus, and it's so good for us to remember that our life isn't summed up in American holidays, but in Christ. And whatever we feel on Monday through Sunday and on days special like this one, our life is in Christ and his word and his life and his death and his resurrection and all in his complete authority over the universe. And that's what we're going to consider today. What we see today in Matthew 9 are debates and a dinner party. And we've all been in these moments. We've all had debates over which movie's better, who makes better hamburgers, In-N-Out or Whataburger. I know that's a big thing. Um, Hop Dottie's truly better than them all. And is the dress, do you remember this one? Is the dress blue or is the dress, is it blue and black or is it white and gold? Is, did you hear Yanni? Did you hear Laurel? There's all these debates that we've had and you had, you ramp it up, you've had dinner parties, you've had meals with people where maybe a little argument broke out, a little debate broke out over dinner, and it got kind of heated. This is what happens in today's passage. A debate breaks out over Jesus. One debate in someone's house, and then another one at a dinner party. And all this happens around Jesus because Jesus is that important. He is so significant. And the implications of what Jesus is saying and the claims that he makes about himself are so head-snapping that the people debate and argue with him over what he's saying. And what Matthew does in this chapter today is he's, as he's writing this book and writing this account, he wants you to see where you land with Jesus, what you think about him and what Jesus offers you. So let's read it beginning in Matthew 9, beginning in verse 1. And if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. He just casted out some demons on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, verse 1. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Just then, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the scribes said to themselves, He's blaspheming. Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, 
Then he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. You may be seated. Every time Natalie and I leave the house and we either are going to go to the grocery store together and we're going to go to the gym together or whatever, we have two kids, a 10-year-old and a 5-year-old, and then we say, okay, kids, we're leaving, and the 5-year-old runs towards the door as we're leaving. I'm in charge, right? Nobody. You're, you're not in charge. Mama said I'm in charge. No, she didn't. 10-year-old comes flying around the corner. I'm in charge, right? Yes, you're in charge. The five-year-old, hey, I thought I was the man of the house when you are gone. Yes, you are the man of the house. I'm in charge, right? You're in charge. Ivy's looking at me like, what? I'm just like, just, just hold on. This is every time. Every day this is happening. It's a battle for power and authority, and I love it. Because they need to get this early on. They, they need to know where they're at in this world because this happens in your life. In your home, you're a tiny ruler and a governor over certain areas of your life. You're at home watching TV, you have the remote, you have authority. You eat, eat what you want to eat, you go to sleep when you want to go to sleep, but then you go into work. And what happens at work for most of us? A boss looms over you. Your authority has now been limited, shrunk down, confined to just what you are responsible for. You can only make decisions within your power. Like example, can a shelf stalker at Target, can he introduce unilaterally a new brand of shampoo to the shelves? No. That happens in testing and purchasing and marketing and brand development. He doesn't have the power to do that. And we all recognize this is true in our social structures because we have all uttered this sentence before. I want to speak to the manager. Can I talk to somebody over you? Can I talk to somebody in charge? Because we realize there are people, they don't have the power that we really need in this moment. And what's happening in Matthew 9 is a debate over Jesus' authority. Is he really the manager? Can he really do that? Why is Jesus okay to do that? And if you're here the last two weeks, this has been building up. In chapter 8, when Pastor Barry preached, we saw he has authority to heal disease. He has authority over sickness and broken muscle tissue. He can command white blood cells to, to do what they need to do. And then last week, we saw Jesus and his disciples in a storm, and Jesus has authority to tell a storm, enough is enough. And then he has authority over the demonic powers and tells them, 
go. And he cast them out of this man. And now it comes to this next level, an example of authority. Look at verse one. So they cross the sea, and then now in verse two, as they get out of the boat, just then, some men, they, they're probably in someone's house now. The other accounts say they're in a house, and these guys open a roof and lower their friend to Jesus. It's the same story. They're just then, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. So they cross back to the sea, this paralyzed man. He could be a paraplegic, just two. He could be a quadriplegic, four. We, we don't know, but it's enough that he can't walk, and he's got a mat that he gets carried on. And look at what Jesus sees in this moment. Verse 2. Seeing their faith. All of them. They all believe Jesus can do something about this. They've heard what Jesus has done for other people. Maybe they've seen with their own eyes what Jesus has done for other people. And by bringing their paralyzed friend to Jesus, they are saying, we want to speak to the manager. We, we want to talk to the guy who is fixing all of these issues. The one who gets stuff done. And, and beloved, this is the truth we need to remember right here. When, Jesus, when it says, seeing their faith, faith is visible. It just is. Faith has a locomotive power to it, pushing you, moving you to, to do things. Christian faith doesn't just sit back and believe the right things. Christian faith is believing the right things, and then those right things moving you to do righteous things. These guys believe Jesus is the right man for the situation, so they went to him. As Frederick Bruner, one of my favorite commentaries in Matthew, says, faith lives under one great compulsion, to get into the presence of Jesus. Faith lives under one great compulsion, to get into the presence of Jesus. I love that. That's, these guys assess the situation. We need to get into the presence of Jesus. When little kids get over their head at home or they can't open their snack, which they feel, I'm over my head right now. This is a traumatic moment. I can't open my mini pack of Oreos. My hands are too greasy or I, I can't open my soda. I need help. What, what do they do? They always go to mom. 99% of the time they're going to mom. Almost never dad. I can be even closer to them. They run past me and go find their mother. Because they just know. Not that I'm like incompetent. I can open a soda. <laughs> but they know she can handle the situation. We need to get to mom. And these guys and this paralytic assess the situation and say, we need to get to Jesus. And I wonder, is, is that why you came here today? Do you assess the situation in your life and say, I need to get into the presence of Jesus? You assess your life, you assess your problems, your ups, your downs, your hopes, your past, and even assessing your past and assessing your future. Is it, I need to go to Jesus? Even on Mother's Day, which is nice, you get the whole family together, you get great pictures and all that stuff, that's great. But that's why we come here. I need to worship and be close to Jesus. I need to be around Jesus' people. That's why we read the Bible. I don't want to be near Jesus. That's why we pray. I need to talk to Jesus. And look at what Jesus says in response to this. It's amazing. Continuing in verse 2. So seeing their faith, Jesus tells the paralyzed man, look, have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. What? 
That's not what he came for. What did they come for? Healing. That's what they brought him for. They were hoping for healing. And we already read Jesus is going to heal him, but why say this first? Well, what's his greatest need? Temporary physical correction in a body that will eventually break down? Or eternal deliverance and forgiveness from sins? Listen, I know some of us come here hoping just to check it off our list. Some of us read our Bibles just to check it off our list. Some of us come here today even just hoping for our marriage to get fixed. We're just giving church a try to get our marriage fixed. We're, we're giving Jesus a try just to get some wisdom for our parenting. We, we give Jesus a try just to feel better about ourselves. And some of that is all fine and good. But Jesus is reminding us what our greatest need really is. That even when we go to Jesus with legit needs, we're reminded my greatest need is to have my sins forgiven. And Jesus offers that to everyone here. It's what his death and his resurrection was for. And I love that Jesus says, have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. That's, you could translate it in our modern way of speaking. It'd be something like saying, hey, everything's okay. Your sins are forgiven. You're fine. Don't worry, you're fine. Your sins are forgiven. I need, I need to hear that from Jesus. Because life can be completely chaotic and out of control and crazy, but if you can hear from the Messiah, you are okay. Your sins are forgiven. Everything will be fine. Do you feel that from Jesus? Have you heard that from Jesus? Have your sins been forgiven? All it takes is faith. Seeing their faith, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. All faith and trust that Jesus fits the occasion. But some people in the crowd here don't think Jesus can do that. And this is the debate over authority. Can Jesus forgive sins? This is the whole problem. Now look at verse three. So Jesus says out loud, your sins are forgiven. And then the scribes, these professional Bible teachers, freak out. Verse three. At this, some of the scribes said to themselves, he's blaspheming. They're charging him with blasphemy. Claiming to do something only God can do. The other version of the story in the other gospels says that the scribes say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus is kind of saying, exactly. That's why I said it. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Yeah, God's here. But they don't believe that. Is that true? Only God can forgive sins? Yes and no. We forgive sins, don't we? Haven't you forgiven people in your life? You've forgiven sins that have been committed against you. This is the key. So, uh, see, if I say something rude to my wife, Natalie, she can forgive me because she's the offended party. She can forgive it. But she can't forgive me from something mean I said to a kid in fourth grade. Kid whose last name rhymed with tinkle. So you know what happened a lot. Well, you're mean to him. It's wrong, sinful. But Natalie can't forgive me of that. She wasn't involved. 
She's not the offended party. But here, listen, Jesus is forgiving this paralyzed man for all of his sins. How can Jesus do that? He's meeting this guy for the first time. Because Jesus is the offended party in all of his sins. He's God. In all of this man's sins, Jesus is the consistent and constantly offended party in his life. And it's true in our lives too. We may sin against our friends and our family, but behind the curtain, the one who was consistently sinned is God. Sinned against is God. But the scribes don't believe it. And look at what Jesus says about this, verse four, look. Perceiving their thoughts, that's amazing, Jesus said, why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? He calls their thoughts evil. And again, consider how strong these words are. They think Jesus cannot forgive sins, either he's not able to or he doesn't have the authority to, and they think less of Jesus. They think little of him. And Jesus calls this evil. Evil. Now, you can have opinions and views that other people don't hold. Like, you might be, this morning, you might be one of the rare people that think this new Aladdin movie is going to be good. It is not going to be good. That's fine, but I wouldn't call that an evil thought, just a difference of opinion, different view. You might think a steak well done is the way to go. I might call that evil, depending on the day. But do you see what Jesus is saying to them and us right now? Thinking less of Jesus, thinking less of the real Jesus, of who Jesus really is, Jesus says that is evil. We don't think he can forgive sins. We don't think he's really God. We don't think that Jesus says, why are you thinking evil stuff about me? So if anyone here this morning, we think less thoughts than the real Jesus, who he really is, who the Bible says he really is, Jesus says, that right there is evil. Not just the sins that people in the city commit, not just the things people inject, not just the things people overdrink, not just the things that people do with their bodies. Jesus says, that is evil, to think less of me. And we've all been guilty of it. And this is why Matthew wants us to have right thoughts toward Jesus so we can live rightly with Jesus. And now Jesus is going to call us and he's going to call the scribes on it. Look at verse 5. So why do you think evil thoughts? Verse 5. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. So Jesus sets up an experiment. This is exactly what he's doing. So he's going to challenge the scribes on this. Let's have a, an experiment, a science experiment in front of everyone. There's the man lying paralyzed who just had pronounced over him, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus looks at the scribes and looks at him and says, which one do you think is easier for me to, to do? Just to say his sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say, get up and walk? It sounds kind of tricky. Like, uh, well, here, just think about it. You have a man lying there paralyzed. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. You can't see that. There's no proof. You just, okay. That's the easier thing to say, Jesus is saying. The harder thing to say is get up and walk. Because if I say get up and walk, and he doesn't get up and walk, I'm a phony. 
So the harder thing to say is get up and walk because it better happen after you say it. So Jesus says clearly the easier thing to say is just your sins are forgiven. And he says, but so you will know that when I say the easier thing it happens, I'll say the harder thing and watch it happen. So Jesus looks at the paralytic and he says in verse six, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, so you know that I can forgive sins. I can say whatever I say and it will happen. Man, pick up your mat, get up, go home. And the paralyzed man is no longer paralyzed. He gets up, takes his stuff, and he goes. Done. Not only does Jesus have the power to heal by doing that, he is showing, look, I have the power to forgive sins. If the harder thing happened, of course the easier thing happened. Because my words have that power. All the way back in verse 8. Leper, you are healed. Sick slave, healed. Demons, go. Storm, stop. See, Jesus, Matthew's showing us Jesus' words have nuclear power in them. And the crowd is awestruck because they see it. Look at verse 8. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God. They praised God because Jesus confirmed, I have clearance. I have the clearance level. I have access. I have the greatest clearance level in the universe. I can go anywhere. I can do anything. And there is nothing that can stop me. I can forgive sins. I can heal people. I can access your personal file and I can wipe it clean. As Paul says in Colossians 1, in him we have redemption, salvation, the forgiveness of sins. This is what Jesus says I can do for you. This is what Jesus says I can offer you. Friends, the things that come into your mind when you're alone and it's quiet, the things that you don't want to think about, the things that you try to busy yourself with so you don't have to think about that you've done, the biggest regrets you have in your life, the pleasures you sought that you shouldn't have, the, the hateful things you said that you shouldn't have, the desires you, you have but you know you, you shouldn't have and they don't honor God and they don't honor others. And Jesus says, I can forgive you. If you trust his death on the cross for your sins and his rising from the dead, he says to you, have courage, son. Have courage, daughter. Your sins are forgiven. And listen, not even your sins will be forgiven when I feel ready to. Like sometimes that's, that's, that's how we operate with each other because we're not God. Sometimes when we come to one another and we ask for forgiveness, we say, hey, you know, I need time. You know why we do that? Because we aren't God. We aren't 100% gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But you know who is? God. So when we come to God and ask him for forgiveness, he doesn't say, I I need to think about it. I I need some time. He says, have courage. Your sins are forgiven. Beloved, Jesus came for sinners like you and like me, like all of us. And that's how this passage ends. Jesus hanging out with sinners and the religious people hating it. And that's the next big question and debate at the dinner party. Why does Jesus hang with sinners? Why, why, why can he do that? Look at verse nine. 
as Jesus went on from there. So he heals the paralyzed man. People are in awe. Verse nine, as he went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. This is the guy writing the gospel of Matthew. This is him. He's sitting at the toll booth. He's a tax collector. We'll talk about that in a second. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. So this is his, also, his name is also Levi. This is a writer of the gospel of Matthew. He's a tax collector. And here's what you need to know about this job. Matthew, I think the best way to summarize Matthew's job is with this picture on the screen. This is Matthew. The sheriff of Nottingham from Disney's Robin Hood. He's slimy. He's sleazy. Don't picture Matthew as somebody with a halo over his head. Matthew is somebody who, he's, he's a Jewish man, but a tax collector is now working for the Roman Empire. They are occupied by Rome. Imagine, just long, crazy imagination. Imagine that Germany won World War II. And here we are occupied by Germany. And imagine one of us, American citizen, born here, working for the Nazis and taxing us on our way to work. We would despise that person immensely. See, Israel's occupied by Rome. Matthew is a Jewish man who has turned on his own people and is now working for the Roman Empire, taxing his people as they come from the lake, as they come with their goods. And not only would he tax them, he would charge extra for himself. And this is free reign. No regulation. Do whatever you need to do, Matthew. Tax collectors were rich. Because you would come and pay your tax. He would say, you know what else? It's a convenience fee. You think this booth got here by itself? i got to pay for this booth. Convenience fee. And I'm, I'm going to need a processing fee from you too. Because i got to count all this and it's going to take extra time. So it's processing fee. Um, there's accounting fee too. I mean, the processing, i just got to like stacks and make it neat. Now the accounting is going to take me forever. And there's a hauling fee. So i got to take all this up to the station. I mean, you think this is, this is all extra work. I'm going to be sweating. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing you a service. So convenience, hauling, processing, counting, go ahead and add those up for me. And some of the coins that the people had at this time, around the time of Jesus, some scholars talk about these coins as having the picture of Caesar on the other side, and on the other side was a Roman soldier with his foot on the neck of an Israelite. Give me those coins. Matthew was so despised, tax collectors were so despised and so hated because they were the ultimate sellout. There's no other way to say it than Matthew was a dirtbag. He was banned from the temple. Tax collectors were banned from going to the temple, from going to the synagogue. They were considered unclean. They, they were considered unwelcomed because they had a dirty job using dirty money. And Jesus walks up to him. When people would want to avoid Matthew, they would want to avoid eye contact, and they would want to avoid conversations with Matthew as much as they possibly could. And Jesus walks right up to him with eye contact and conversation and says, follow me. Follow me. And he goes, look. And he got up, verse 9, and followed him. Have you gone to Jesus? 
you're hearing Jesus' words to you the same. Follow me. Do you follow Christ or do you just follow church? Do you follow Jesus or do you just follow Christianity? See, these, these are all very different things. Even if you think, I'm a dirtbag. Listen, Jesus doesn't mind saving dirtbags because that's all there are. There are no dirt-free followers of Christ. He calls everyone out of their own dirtbagness. He calls everyone out of the grime to follow him. Jesus loves to save scoundrels because that's everyone. And look at verse 10. Well, he's reclining at the table in the house. This is probably Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. They're having a dinner, a network, a network of tax collectors. You could not find more despised people to hang out with than the tax collectors. That's why the next word there is, and sinners. There's all kinds of other deep, sinful people who would be considered the edges of society. And Jesus says, let's have a dinner party. Jesus is hanging out with the riffraff. And there's a lesson here. Jesus isn't put off by being around the riffraff. Jesus isn't put off by being around sinners. And then look at the other side. They aren't put off by being around him. And Jesus isn't watering down his message either. He's going to say later, I came for sinners. When when the Pharisees challenge him on it, why are you eating with them? He says, look, guys, I came for sinners. So they're hearing, oh, you think we're sinners? Yes, I'm here to save you. So Jesus isn't put off by being around sinners, but I wonder how often we are. See, the Pharisees are the ones who say, I will not eat with tax collectors and sinners. And it seems like a lot of southern, white, evangelical Christians are the ones who often say, I can't eat with those kinds of people. I can't go to lunch with an LGBT coworker. I, I, I can't have a, a Muslim neighbor at our house. If we're becoming the kinds of people who don't eat with tax collectors and sinners, we are not more like Jesus and his disciples. We're more like the Pharisees. We should learn to act like Jesus. Would you worry what people would think if you hung out with people like these? To point them to Jesus. There, there are wrong ways to hang out with sinners. And then there are righteous, right ways to hang out with sinners. One, to join them in sin and just to never speak the truth is wrong. But to befriend them and love them and to point them to Jesus is right. And listen, this next part really applies to most of you and not me because and you'll notice that what I'm going to say. Matthew invites his coworkers to Jesus. You think about evangelism. Well, all my coworkers, I hope all my coworkers are saved. You guys saved? Okay, I think they're all saved. But most of your coworkers probably are not. And Matthew uses his friendships, his network of, of colleagues, and pointing them to Jesus. Do the same. Has them in his home. A meal. Do the same. Hear me, people out, most of the people that I've led to Christ have been over meals. A conversation and a meal. 
And hear me, people outside the church, they are not the enemy of the church. That's what Jesus is showing us. These tax collectors and sinners, they're not the enemies of Christ. They're not the enemies of his disciples. But a lot of times that's what we think. People outside the walls, they are our enemies. They're against us. They may be against us, but we're not against them. Sinners and unbelievers, they are not your enemy. They are you before Jesus saved you. And now we tell them Jesus can save you because he saved me. And there's no doubt that this kind of crowd that Jesus was with, it made religious people's eyebrows raise. That's exactly what happens. Look at verse 11. Now when the Pharisees saw this, so it goes from the scribes, it's one group, now you have the other group, the Pharisees, and they're also the religious elite, and they asked his disciples, and they don't have the guts to ask Jesus. They've already had encounters with Jesus, and they've not gone well for them. So they're asking his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? There's probably a little bit of jealousy in here too. Shouldn't he be eating with us? We're great religious. We're awesome. We're great teachers. Why is he eating with the riffraff? Why is he hanging out with them? These are bad people. What's Jesus' answer? Why does he hang with sinners? That's who I came for. Look at verse 12. Now when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. When you are well, you take, you take Theraflu just for fun? No. Just when you're sick. Does anyone go get a cast on their arm, just preventative in case you do break it? No. Those in need the sick go to a doctor. They need a doctor. Jesus says, that's why I'm here. These people, these tax collectors, these sinners, they realize they are sick. But you Pharisees, you don't see you're sick. So you don't ask for me. You just leave me bad Yelp reviews. They leave me five stars. They leave me good Google reviews. You don't because you don't think you need me. I didn't come for those who are well. Look what he says in 13. He amplifies it even more. Go and learn what this means. He quotes from Isaiah, I'm sorry, from Hosea 6, and this is said to the Bible nerds. And he says, hey, why don't you go learn this for real this time? You You guys love learning. You guys know all kinds of stuff. Go learn this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. They're great at sacrifice. We're gonna learn later in the Gospel of Matthew. They even tithe on their spice racks. Did anyone bring a little Ziploc baggie with cumin and salt and pepper today? The Pharisees would have. They would have brought 10% of their money, 10% of their spice racks. Jesus says, you guys love to sacrifice, but you don't love mercy. See, sacrifice only benefits you. It's just you and God. He says, but mercy benefits others. That's the true heart of a disciple of Christ. Loving others as themselves, as he says in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus says, go and learn what that means. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now he's not using the word righteous in in like, you guys are great. He's using the word righteous in scare quotes. I didn't come to call the righteous, the self-righteous, people who think they've got it all together. No, I came for sinners. The people who realize they don't have their lives together the people that want me, the people that need me. That's who I came for. 
You could say it this way, really. The self-righteous think they don't need me, but it's those who know they are unrighteous, they hear me. The self-righteous think they don't need me, but the unrighteous hear me. So listen, you, you may be in one category or the other this morning. I know some of you, you may even mock Jesus and think, I don't need Jesus. That's self-righteous. The people in the Bible Belt who are most anti-Jesus aren't the unrighteous prostitutes in the city. It's the self-righteous who think they aren't sinners. People may be opposed to Jesus for all kinds of reasons, but at the bottom of it, it's self-righteousness. It's not their open-mindedness. It's not their acceptance of the culture. It's not their, I just want to be you know, open as maybe there are other ways. No, it's their own self-righteousness. They think they are better than Jesus. I don't need him. But it's the unrighteous, the Matthews, the dirtbags of this world, the people like you and me, Jesus calls to his cross and calls to his empty tomb and he saves sinners like us. So if you know you are unrighteous, you know you are a sinner, you are halfway there. As Jesus would say, you are close to the kingdom of heaven. Now, trust Jesus to save you and you will be brought in. But if you feel like you don't need Jesus, I don't get that, I don't need that, I don't get what he does, it's self-righteous. And you'll find out one day that you are not actually righteous in yourself. You do not have a right standing with God in yourself, but that you need Christ and Christ alone because he has the authority. He is in charge. He is the manager. He is the Messiah, and he can save you. Let's go to him and talk to him now. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.